This call is from a correction facility and is subject to monitoring and recording. I've been in here for, I can tell you exactly, 11,945 days, okay? 11,945 days I've been in here. And um, it hasn't been easy. A <laughs> hundred years? I said, man, I'm a, I'm a kid. I didn't do anything. You know? And, uh, you know, that was, uh, that was real painful, man. You know, because... My life was discarded as if, you know, like I was a piece of trash or something. You know, a hundred years, and I had dreams, and I wanted to do things. I wasn't committing crimes, you know. I was a very good young man. That is what happens in so many cases. The cops have a hunch because they're so smart at the scene. They have a hunch. And then once they act on that hunch, they sort of develop tunnel vision and they take off marching in the wrong direction. And that happens in so many of these wrongful convictions. They opened the, the, uh, the cell door and I walked downstairs and I actually walked downstairs to, to be outside. It felt very strange um, to be, like I said, to be walking without no shackles on my feet. I thought it was a dream, but then again, it wasn't a dream. This is wrongful conviction. So are we all are we all hooked up here? We're are we here? We're here. Um, test one, two, three. Sheriff Chip Harding, Albemarle County, Virginia. This call is from a correction facility and is subject to monitoring and recording. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. Uh, it's me. I'm your host, and today we have an episode that is uh, going to rock your world. Um, we have three guests today. Um, I'm going to save the best for last, but we have John Grisham in the studio with us. John, welcome. Delighted to be here. And Sheriff Chip Harding of Albemarle County. Yes, sir. Good to be here. Virginia. And on the phone is Yen Suring, uh, one of the most remarkable people I know and one of the most extraordinary cases of injustice that we've ever covered on this show. So, Yen's, uh, as I always say, I'm, I'm, I'm happy you're here, but I'm sorry you're here. Um, thank you for having me. I, I really appreciate this, Jason. And, and thanks to Chip and John as well. So this is a, a case that takes us back to the 80s, believe it or not. Um, a case that has all the makings of a, a John Grisham novel, actually. Um, because this goes back to Jens when you were first uh, an, a, an exchange student from Germany, a, a brilliant young scholar from everything I'm told. This is a Jefferson scholar, a freshman at the University of Virginia. Um, and Jens, do you want to take us back there and tell us how this started? Sure. Um, this was in 1984, in the fall. Um, I arrived at the University of Virginia um, as a freshman, they called Chris new students there. And I met a um, young woman there who was two and a half years older than I was, Elizabeth Hayson. And um, we were both in the same dormitory. Uh, she had entered the university late because she had had an adventurous youth. Um, she had gone to an English boarding school and run away with her girlfriend to Europe, things like that. And so she came to UVA um, quite a bit older than the rest of us in that dormitory. And uh, I was um, not an American citizen. Um, my father was a German diplomat. That's why I was living in the United States. And 
her family came from South Africa and from Canada. So we were drawn to each other as being um, foreigners, um, not, you know, not Americans. And in the course of that fall semester in 1984, uh, we fell in love. And, um, you know, it was quite a surprise to everybody else in the dormitory because uh, she was very experienced and very mature. And I was, uh, I guess, a nerd, uh, an uber nerd, um, um, and virgin to boot. So she was my very first girlfriend. You were a German Uber version nerd. It's a quite a combination, Jens. And she was a, a, a beautiful uh, young woman, a striking woman, um, who, you know, anyone in your situation would have probably fallen head over heels uh, for, uh, considering the circumstances. Um, but, but the, you know, it, it was, of course, a fateful uh, uh, star-crossed love affair. Yes, and, um, yeah, it was a very short-lived love affair as well. Um, Three months after we started dating, or maybe four months um, after we started dating, um, we went to Washington, D.C. to spend a weekend together. And uh, in the course of that weekend, she um, told me that she was still using drugs, which she had previously told me she had stopped doing, and that she needed to use our rental car to run some drugs from Washington, D.C. to her dealer, who was also a university student, back in Charlottesville. And um, I wanted to come along, but uh, she wouldn't let me because she said that I was such a nerd. Nobody would, no drug dealer would want to do business around me. Um, so she drove off in the car by herself and came back eight hours later um, and told me she had killed her parents. And she said that, um, you know, the drugs had made her do it, and they had deserved it anyway. And um, if I didn't help her, she would be executed. She would be, back then they used electric chair. She said that they would fry her. And she, um, she said that I should be her alibi and tell the police that I, I, she was with me in Washington. And I told her that that would never, ever work because the police never believe boyfriends or husbands or wives, people like that. So I came up with this brilliant idea um, based on Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities, of all things. Um, but I would take the blame for her. I would take the rap for her and um, save her life. Um, was based on a character in this Charles Dickens novel, um, Sidney Carton, who did that in, the, in this novel. Uh, the difference was that in the novel, that particular character actually did get executed, whereas um, my father was a German diplomat, and I thought I had diplomatic immunity. I thought that I could take the blame for her crime, and all that would happen with me was that I would be sent back to Germany and put in prison there, uh, in a juvenile prison, for about 10 years. And I thought that giving 10 years of my life was worth saving her life from the electric chair. Um, yeah. Right. And, it, um, it's sort of a twisted nobility. Um, it's uh, you know, it, it, it's sort of uh, it, very hard to imagine. But at the same time, people do crazy things for love. Uh, 
all the time. And, you know, as you and I have spoken on the phone at length, Jens, about this, and the fact is wars have been started over uh, love affairs. Uh, so, you know, you're not the only person by far that's ever done something so crazy, but this is certainly an extreme example. Um, and well, then, yeah, well, go ahead, Jens, sorry. I was going to say, it's, it's a bit like at the end of the movie Titanic, right? When Leonardo DiCaprio lifts Kate Winslet onto that door to save her life, and then he sort of sinks away and gives his life for her. Um, you know, except I didn't lift Kate Winslet up on that door. I lifted Sharon Stone from Basic Instinct up on that door and then, you know, <laughs> sacrificed myself for her. Yes, we... So uh, we- it, it, we were talking about this earlier, Jens, and I said that it's it's such a, a strange fate that you happen to have only been with one woman, and she turned out to be the devil. Um, it's it's really something that is uh, unimaginable. Um, you know, it's, it's calling her the devil is a little oversimplified. She, she was later diagnosed uh, with a very severe personality disorder, so you know she, she actually had serious mental health issues. And, um, and of course, they, she claimed that her mother had sexually abused her with the knowledge and cooperation of her father. And, you know, there's, there's some indications that was, that may have actually been true. Um, of course, we'll never know for sure now. But, um, you know, she, she, she was a troubled young woman. This, I want to uh, fast forward a little bit because I want to get into the current circumstance and, and how we can hopefully make a difference and get you home where you belong. Um, but as things developed, you initially were not suspects, and uh, but then at some point you decided to sort of make a getaway. And this is back in the days when, in the, for people who don't remember, in the 80s you could sort of travel the world under a different name and it wasn't all these different, uh, it, it wasn't you know so tightly uh, monitored or regulated. And so you guys went around the world and ultimately ended up in England um, which is also sort of a crazy adventure to think about. These two lovers uh, running away from the authorities, traveling the world with a suitcase, and, you know, it's, uh, you know, sort of a, it sounds, sounds kind of romantic and, and adventurous and, you know, um, cinematic at the same time. Uh, and you ended up in England, and that's when things began, began to, to go wrong, right? Because you were ultimately arrested for passing bad checks, uh, as I understand it, and then... Um, and then we get to the point where the false confessions come in, or the fa- your false confessions. They, so the police took both Elizabeth and me back from the jail to the police station, and they actually wrote into the police station log book that I was to be held incommunicado. In other words, I was to be isolated from the outside world and not given access to my lawyer. And that's exactly what they did for four days. They uh, interrogated me four days, many, many hours, uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of hours. And then finally, on the fourth day, um, when, uh, I decided to keep my promise to Elizabeth that I had made uh, 15 months earlier. Um, and I decided to take the blame for what she did. And um, that's what I did. I, I told them the story that she and I had cooked up. And, uh, of course, that false confession contained many mistakes that the real killer would not have made. I uh, described the clothing of one victim incorrectly, and I placed the other victim in the wrong room 
and there were numerous mistakes like that, um, um, which you know should have alerted the police to the fact that I might not be telling the truth. Um, in addition to that, of course, at that time, the police who were interrogating me were in possession of an FBI crime scene profile by uh, one by one of the people who invented crime scene profiling, uh, one of the leading special agents. And that profile said that the crime had been committed by a, a woman in a close relationship to the victims. And, of course, I was a man, and I didn't know the victims. I met the one time for 20 minutes. Um, so they should have known that what the story I was telling them was not true. Um, nevertheless, um, and, and then, of course, the other thing that happened is, is that just a couple of hours after I told the police that I did it, Elizabeth told the police that she did it. She said, I did it myself. I got off on it. But by that stage, the police had decided that I was the guilty one, so they had actually let her withdraw that confession, which is hilarious in a way, because um, they found her fingerprints at the crime scene and not mine. And, uh, you know, it's um, you know, quite incredible that um, they let her withdraw that confession. But they did. And so they ended up charging me with being killer and they charged her with being the accomplice. And you have one minute remaining. They charged me with being the killer and they charged her with being the accomplice. And in 1990, uh, they put me on trial and uh, convicted me of something that I did not do. Uh, when we get back, Jason, I can talk about the blood which they used at the trial and what changed later on, okay? So let me hang up and call back. We're back. Hey, we're back. So um, there's there's a lot of things wrong with this case. There's so many. It's it's hard to even fit them into a uh, an episode of the show. But uh, one of them that I talk about, and as you know, you know we've known each other for quite some time. Been advocating alongside this amazing team of people that you have. And what I say to anyone that will listen to me is this is an unusual situation because normally in false confession cases, you have people who are trying not to implicate themselves and who may be of limited mental abilities as well uh, in some cases. In your case, you were trying to implicate yourself, right? So there would have been no reason for you not to tell the truth if, in fact, you knew what it was. But the reason that you were wrong about these details is because you just didn't know. So here you had a guy, you were actually the smartest guy in the room, and you were trying your best to save your, the love of what you thought was the love of your life, and yet you were unable to get almost anything right because of the fact that you weren't there. So that makes it hard. And I do want to bring John and Chip into the conversation now, too, uh, just to talk about this uh, this scenario that took place in England and 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 the immediate aftermath of it, um, John, you want to jump in here? Yeah, we, we, if you, it goes back to a uh, a confession, false confession, because there's no um, there's no other proof uh, to convict Jens of the murder. So you've got to, all they have is a false con- a, a confession. And with any false confession case, uh, what you would hope that the authorities do is once they managed to extract the confession uh, and whatever tactics they used to do that is that they will match it up to the physical evidence. 
to see if it in fact matches. And false confessions virtually never match up because there are too many details or too many um, uh, specifics in the murder, the, 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 the method of murder, the place, the blood, the blood splatter, the clothing, the room, whatever. You know, there's a whole of fingerprints, footprints. There's a long list of, of items that you know, police go through in any investigation. And with a false confession, it's usually fairly s- simple to uh, to realize once you start matching the confession uh, given by somebody who wasn't there, it's impossible for them to remember all the details that the real killer would actually know, where he left the bodies, how he killed them, well, you know, who, who did what, uh, what was on the kitchen table, what was knocked over, what was spilt. These are all, you know, it's fairly common, common sense. And, and then and in Yen's case, you know, there were so many discrepancies between his confession and the actual physical crime scene you just want to scream and say why didn't somebody put these together match them up and and somebody whether the cops and the local boys are you know not always that reliable especially in a rural county like uh bedford virginia where you know they they don't see a lot of murders and the cops are not that uh well trained and sophisticated um, you you just you 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 want to say why can't you guys look at what's obvious? Uh, what frustrates me is when you get to trial and you uh, have what you think should be a competent defense lawyer who cannot walk through the confession step by step by step and show the discrepancies between the confession and the actual crime scene. I'm not sure if this was done uh, or attempted in Yen's case, but it certainly was not effective. And so that's that's where we always start in a false confession case is let's match it up with the proof. And it never matches up. It never does. And this was a crazy case because on top of all the other, you know, uh, uh, factors that led to his uh, wrongful conviction, um, I think there was an inherent bias. I can't prove this because of the fact that it was Bedford County, which ironically was is the county that lost more soldiers in World War II to the Germans per capita than anywhere else in the United States. It's why the World War II Memorial is there. And so I think that there's at least an argument that there could have been a, uh, that odds were stacked against Jens from the beginning. Um, I want to bring Sheriff Harding into the, into the conversation. Um, Sheriff Harding is a, uh, a four, you've been in law enforcement for several decades, four right. decades, right? And have been um, recognized by, uh, it's, I mean, his resume is, is nuts when you look at the number of accreditations he has and the number of uh, um, awards he's won. And, and he's um, uh, one of the most uh, accomplished people in law enforcement in the United States. And you've been, you've dived into this case uh, with, I mean, with all, with all guns blazing, so to speak. And, and is it possible, Sheriff, uh, you've examined this evidence 18 ways till Sunday. Is it theoretically possible that Yen's committed this crime? Is it possible? I mean, he could have been dropped down with us from a spaceship and done it, but is it logical he he was there when these murders occurred? Extremely unlikely he was there. There's nothing that puts him there other than this false confession. And as John was saying earlier, um, the confession didn't match the crime scene when you look at it. I mean, there was some huge discrepancies that weren't followed up. You had a young investigator, his first homicide case he'd ever investigated and I'm I'm reading a transcript going you got to be kidding me you didn't do any follow-up plus they didn't tape the confession so when he gets to court very skillfully 
the prosecutor only asked questions that were consistent with the crime scene and the event and omitted the inconsistencies. And as John was pointing out, he had a very, very ineffective defense attorney that didn't bring that to the attention of the jury. Among other things. And Jens, take us back in your, um, you know, from your perspective. Um, this, this is a nightmare that no one can imagine living through. Uh, you, were, you had been in jail in England for quite some time before you even came to trial. Uh, you had nothing in your life experience that would prepare you for any of this. Um, and now here you are in the, in the grip of the justice system in Virginia um, as, a, as sort of an arch villain. Right. And what was this like for you to go through this at the time? Did you believe that you would be uh, um, that you would actually win this case? Um, can I throw in a couple of other factoids and then answer your question? As far as details that corroborate the confession. At the time of the trial, the prosecutor um, um, pointed out to the jury 26 times that the police found um, some O-type blood at the crime scene and that I was the only person involved in the case who had type O blood. The victims did not have type O blood and my girlfriend did not have type O blood. The only person involved in the case was type O blood was me, is what the prosecutor told the jury 26 times. And it would take another two and a half decades to find out through DNA testing that indeed that was type O blood that was left by somebody else. So what the fact that seemed to corroborate the confession at the time of the trial is now shown to actually disprove the confession. And sure, um, um, I'm sure Chip, Chip can talk more about that. Uh, Sheriff Harding, what percentage of the population has uh, uh, this type of blood? I think it's about 45 percent, isn't it? It's pretty high. Right. So, I mean, that really is, I mean, it's a ridiculous thing to try to pin anything on, but yet the prosecutor mentioned it 26 times. It's also worth mentioning uh, that Jens's lead trial lawyer uh, was disbarred a few years after your, uh, your, false, uh, your wrongful conviction. And he was disbarred because of mental illness. Uh, drugs were a, a factor in all of this. And it was shown that he was suffering from this, um, this, this profound problem during the time of your trial. So that's just another important thing to, to recognize. In the fall of 2008, a sleepy Seattle suburb was shocked by a crime that no one could have expected. A local football star planned a daring bank robbery complete with decoys, disguises, and an outlandish getaway plan. He drew the whole thing up just like a game-winning play on the field and almost got away with it. The sneak follows a twisting story of a once great athlete who committed that crime and how the robbery forever changed the small town where it occurred. Be sure to subscribe to The Sneak on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. 
Anyone who knows me knows I wear glasses all the time. It's like a part of my face. And the thing is, it's so annoying going to a store and trying glasses on and going through that whole process. Warby Parker has solved the problem. I just participated in the home try-on program, and here's what happened. They sent me the glasses. I tried them on in my office, five different pairs. I showed them to my friends. I, you know, looking at other people. What do you think? This, that, the other thing. I look in the mirror. I picked the one that suited me the best. And then I sent back the other four. And here's the thing. The glasses, you're not going to believe this. They start at $95, including prescription lenses. I mean, that's a small fraction of what I'm used to paying. And the lenses include anti-glare and anti-scratch coatings, which is super important to me for obvious reasons. Anyway, the free home try-on program works like this. You order five pairs of glasses and you try them on absolutely free for five days. You can show anyone and then there's no obligation to buy. The shipping is free. It includes a prepaid return shipping label. So head to warbyparker.com slash conviction to take the quiz that comes before and then order your free home try-on. And now, introducing Scout by Warby Parker. And Scout is for you people, for everyone that wears contact lenses. And here's the thing. They're comfortable, they're breathable, and they're affordable. They're daily contact lenses. They're made from a super moist material that resists drying for lasting hydration and comfort. It's everything you want from a contact lens. Order a trial pack that includes six days worth of contacts for only $5. Unreal. And then receive $5 off your next Warby Parker order. Learn more. Go to warbyparker.com slash conviction. That's warbyparker.com slash conviction. Try it today. What did it feel like? You wanted to know what it felt like? Um, at that stage in 1990, I had already been in prison for four years fighting extradition um, from England to the United States. For most of those four years, I was convinced, and all my lawyers were convinced, and everybody thought that I would definitely be sentenced to death. Um, so I spent four years in prison, in effect, psychologically, on death row. I was, I was, everybody, including my own team, told me that I had no chance of avoiding the electric chair. Um, and then at the last minute, uh, that was avoided. We won an appeal at the European Court of Human Rights, and I was brought back to America. And um, that sort of thing has an effect on you psychologically. Living in prison for four years, believing that you're going to die pretty gruesomely in the electric tube. And um, then I got back, brought back to Virginia. Everybody hated me. Everybody was convinced I was guilty. Um, and it was, you know, it was really it was scary. I was... Um, it was a very frightening experience, and um, and I did not handle it well. I did not handle it well. Um, um, but, again, you have to look at this against the background of my having just spent, you know, three years under imminent threat of death, and um, then coming into the zoo atmosphere and having to see Elizabeth Hazen, the woman that I had sacrificed myself for, get up on the stand and perjure herself um, and tell all these lies to put me away in prison. Um, and when I say that she perjured herself, that's not just a claim I make. Um, 26 years later, she actually admitted that in a uh, newspaper interview. She admitted that she perjured herself at that trial. 
But at that time, nobody knew that and nobody cared. They just wanted a witness to point the finger at me, and she did that job. She pointed the finger at me, and um, that and my own false confession and the type of blood... That's what did me in. And the sock print, of course, was a ridiculous piece of evidence that no no serious person should have ever even... It shouldn't have been allowed in court, and it shouldn't have been... And the way that it was done was very devious. Um, but I want to go back to John and Chip here, because, John, you were a criminal defense lawyer in your younger years. And, uh, Chip, obviously, you were a very accomplished investigator. Um, how would you guys have handled this? And do you think... What could have been done to save Jens? And if you were if you were representing him back then, what would you have said? It's difficult to uh, you know project myself into that situation, especially now, many years later. Uh, I only practiced law for ten years, and my my dream when I was very young was to become an, an accomplished courtroom lawyer, uh, a big time trial lawyer. And to do that, I volunteered for all of the indigent cases that I could possibly get because I needed the work, but also it got me in the courtroom. And within uh, within two years of finishing law school, I had tried two murder cases by myself, uh, no second chair. They weren't capital cases, but they were murder cases. And I had won both of them, uh, not guilty. And um, so I was in the courtroom a lot. I didn't win many cases because they weren't supposed to be won. Uh, most of my clients went to prison. But anyway, that, that was that was my world back then was criminal defense law, and I wanted to parlay that into a you know a courtroom resume for for big cases. And so that was very much the way I lived back then. Uh, and, and when I read these cases, uh, and I read a lot of them now, being on the board of the Innocence Project and working with innocence cases, and you see some of the defense work by uh, lawyers, and this was a private attorney that uh, Yunza's family provided, a guy who was not even from the area. I think he was from Detroit or someplace. Um, but to, to see the, the incompetence of defense lawyers and the and the lack of effort, the lack of uh, integrity in challenging the prosecution, even challenging the judges, uh, it's, it's extremely frustrating. And we see it all the time in, in wrongful conviction cases where you have all the reasons, all of the factors that lead to wrongful convictions, whether it's junk science or jailhouse snitches or false confessions or whatever, we, you have a list. Uh, but the one that really irritates me a lot is the incompetent d- defense work because there's no excuse for it. It's it's a question of simple hard work or saying no to a case you shouldn't take to begin with. Uh, so I can't tell you specifically what I would have done 30 years ago to save yens. I can't do that. I, I'm not that smart. But um, hard work, there's, you, there's rarely a substitute for hard work and fortitude in challenging the facts. And I didn't see it in this case. And Sheriff Harding, I want to talk to you because um, it's interesting to me that, you know, Jens has assembled this remarkable team, and it's a great credit to him. And, and you're an interesting character in this because you're a conservative guy, or a guy who's obviously a law and order guy, and yet you have devoted yourself selflessly and spent time that you could have been doing anything else to hundreds of hours to this case. Um, so can you talk about that? And then can you talk about the, the actual uh, forensic evidence? Right. Well, his attorney, Stephen Rosenfield, asked me to take a look at part of the pardon petition to see if I could find a way to strengthen it or to see if he's miss, missed something in it. And I told Steve at the beginning I felt like Jens was guilty based on everything I'd seen. I know Governor Kane had tried to send him back to Germany. I was opposed to that. 
um, because I felt like he was guilty. He shouldn't have been given any special consideration just because he was a German. But uh, so Steve gave me the case. It won't take but a couple of hours. Well, I ended up taking a bunch of stuff home that night. My wife thought I lost my mind because I spent basically the whole weekend the dining room table covered with material that Steve gave me. And I said, oh, my God, this is nothing like what was represented. And, and in conclusion, um, I ended up writing a 19-page letter to the governor breaking down the closing arguments of the case. You know, that's the strength of the government's case, last bite at the apple. And I broke that down, and then after that was published, I had a, um, another investigator work with me for 25 years, said, let me help former FBI agent that I know that I worked another case with, jumped in, and uh, one of the original invest- Bedford investigators said he felt like Yens had been railroaded and was innocent also. So the four of us have been working it collectively. We've given a couple thousand hours. And uh, you want to talk briefly about the forensics. The old blood was very powerful, as was mentioned. Uh, if, and I will say, if I was on that jury, I would have convicted him based on it, the way the evidence was represented so skillfully by the prosecutor. The old blood now we know absolutely. No one can test the fact that it's not Yen Surin. He's not been detected in the crime scene, but two other males, one with AB blood and one with O blood, have been detected in the crime scene, and we have not identified those people. We, my, we have, not have not, in my opinion, Bedford County should consider having an open homicide investigation. Then you look at the, the next piece of evidence that was pretty powerful, the, the Commonwealth um, originally got a certificate of analysis from the State uh, Bureau of Forensics saying that the shoe... You have one minute remaining. The shoe in sock size was consistent with a six and a half to seven and a half woman shoe or a man five or six. Well, they originally had, and this just blew my mind, they originally had a small female as a prime suspect in this thing, and the prosecutor wrote a letter, and we got a copy of it, attached with a draft affidavit, saying that he wanted this woman's blood, fingerprints, and shoe impressions because her shoe was consistent with what was in the crime scene. Now, you turn around and go to trial, you don't hear anything. The defense attorney brings nothing up. They bring in a non-qualified individual to testify. He did what we we like to refer to as a magic trick, created an overlay of an impression of Yen's foot and said it basically fits like a glove, reminds you of O.J., and he was even instructed he could not testify as an expert. But when you look at the closing arguments of the prosecutor, he says it could only fit one man. One man in the world could this fit. And he points at Yen Surin. And we know that's hoopla. That's junk evidence. And the same, the same man that, that put this on in front of the jury, Robert Halet, uh, did the same thing in another case where a man was given the death penalty. And thank God it took a few years. He did not get executed. DNA proved he absolutely didn't do it. So you have, here you have the same junk science being used again. Uh, there was a juror that gave an affidavit to the attorneys that said it was tied 6-6 in the jury room. They wanted to take a look at the sock and shoe evidence again, and he said that's what turned the tide. And we know now, uh, we know now that's ludicrous. Um, there are really two parts. You've got a false confession, and you also have a, uh, a false alibi. You've got... Elizabeth, who claims she stayed at the hotel room, and when Yens came back, she said Yens comes back that night after midnight in a sheet covered in blood from head to toe in the rental vehicle, and Yens asked her to clean it up with Coca-Cola. Yet that vehicle was tested with luminol, and I've never had a case where blood had been present, even bleach had gotten it all out. No indication of any blood at all, and it was testimony from the folks at the rental agency that the car was in immaculate condition, no signs of any Coca-Cola. 
we have since learned and and digging in the little limited information we can see um, that there was actually blood found in the trap of the shower of the master bedroom and that shower wall illuminated like 4th of July. So it gives us the impression as investigators, at least one of the participants in this homicide took a shower. So why would he be covered in blood from head to toe? It's impossible. And there are three or four more things that Elizabeth says that occurred we can disprove with her alibi. As a matter of fact, and I'll close, we have not, everything that has come out of that woman's mouth, we can either prove is, a, pro, is provable that she's lying or it's highly suspect she's lying. We've looked very hard at everything that Jens has said, and we have not caught him in a lie. We, everything that he said, we, we have no reason not to believe him. There, there's a book that Jens wrote with Bill Sizemore called The Far, Far Better Thing. And in, uh, on page 220, I'm going to read this, Russell Johnson, a fully qualified footprint expert, was so outraged that he wrote a letter to the editor of the Roanoke newspaper declaring that the sock print evidence was worthless junk science. He said there appeared to have been a slide in the heel before it came to rest, which of course would invalidate any attempt to, to, to size uh, uh, the thing up. And then he made a very strong quote that said that the bloody sock print, quote, provides no evidence whatsoever that Mr. Suring was at the scene of the crime. So the idea that this was the thing that the jurors cite as the, the thing that broke them from a 6-6 tie to a, ultimately a unanimous guilty verdict, it, it should be offensive to anyone who believes in truth and justice, and certainly is to us, which is why we're here now. Um, John, you look like you have something on your mind. No, I'm just uh, fascinated by the uh, level of junk science that permeates our courtroom still today, uh, whether it's um, sock print analysis or bite mark analysis or hair analysis or boot print analysis. There's a long, sad list of uh, these analyses that uh, have put so many people in prison, uh, uttered by people who are not qualified uh, you you know, you can go to a weekend seminar and study blood splatter analysis, get a certificate and call yourself an expert. And some some prosecutor somewhere can call you in at a murder trial and you you know pretty much say whatever he wants you to say. We at the Innocence Project, we are laboring to provide some national standard for forensic sciences to get to clean up the courtroom and get all the crap out of it. So we have good qualified experts who give valid scientific opinions about things that are really, really uh, important. You know, uh, the Ron Williamson case, the, the book I wrote about the innocent man, he was convicted in part because of hair analysis uh, provided by the Oklahoma State Crime Lab. And this uh, expert took some scalp and pubic hair from the crime scene and said, yeah, that's a, it's a, it matches Ron, and the jury ate that up. Uh, ten years later, that same hair, when Ron was tried in 87, there was no DNA. Ten years later, we had DNA, and all 17 hairs were excluded from by, by DNA from Ron Williamson. So, there, And then later, a few years ago, the FBI admitted that when it comes to hair analysis, 95% of their own FBI examiners got it wrong. Okay, That's the FBI. That's the cream of the crop. Can you imagine what the, the numbers are for the state crime lab? So... The junk science is just uh, sickening, and and Jens is in prison today because of junk science. It's there's so much because this case we're talking about a case in which a couple was brutally murdered, stabbed uh, multiple times, each of them very bloody crime scene, full rich with biological evidence, 
from the actual killers. Um, in theory, uh, you also had a logical um, explanation for this in that Elizabeth had said multiple times that she had been sexually abused by her mother, uh, that her father may have been involved in this in some way. There was a, a clear motive in that sense. You had uh, drugs, which we, no one ever claimed that you were on drugs, but we know that she was uh, doing hard drugs and that she was uh, running with a very... Uh, a very nefarious crew back then and would have had access to the type of people who might commit a murder like this. Um, people who knew you back then, including some people from law enforcement, said that it was, even Elizabeth said it was ludicrous to think that you could have committed a brutal crime like this because you're not a, a physically uh, imposing guy. You would have had to overpower two adults. Um, none of it ever made any sense and there should have been it should have been relatively simple and now of course so many people have weighed in on this including chuck reed one of the original investigators in the case who has said in uh, emphatic terms that it could not have been you that he doesn't believe it was you um and yet we still uh find ourselves in this situation where we're still all trying to get you out and it's it's also worth talking about the fact that you know you have while in prison, distinguished yourself in ways that are uh, almost unprecedented, writing nine books, widely published, um, as uh, 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 educating yourself, uh, becoming a, a Tai Chi master and, and a meditation teacher, and, uh, and of course, having had an absolutely perfect record behind bars. I often talk about the fact that you've never, to my knowledge, never even spilled your coffee. So it's it's remarkable in what it says about you and also about the idea that we are a nation uh, supposedly of second chances, of, of forgiveness. So why anyone would want to keep you in, even if they are unwilling uh, or unable, unwilling to look at or unable to understand the scientific evidence of your innocence, the idea that we still keep you behind bars, uh, it, it, it's just uh, it's an affront to anyone who believes in, uh, in, in, in just decency. Well, it's, it's been very, very difficult for me, um, especially over the last two and a half years since the pardon petition was submitted based on the DNA evidence. It's been really difficult for me because for 30 years, we thought there was no DNA evidence in this case that could prove my innocence. And then after 30 years in prison, it was actually I on the phone with my lawyer, Steve Rosenfield, flipping through some old forensic reports. I found the DNA evidence. And, you know, that's what the pardon petition is based on. But two and a half years later, we cannot get anybody to act on it. And that's, you know, for 30 years, I was wishing for DNA, and then I finally get the DNA evidence, and then nobody's willing to listen or accept it or do anything about it. Uh, let me jump in for a second, because we have here an interesting, uh, such an amazing group, right? We have uh, John Grisham, who is, uh, you know, one of the most uh, famous, if not the most famous Virginian, um, legendary figure from the literary world, and who is uh, certainly no stranger to politics uh, or justice. And we have Sheriff Harding, who knows his way around law enforcement as well or better than anybody in the state. And maybe you guys can try to give me some insight as to why this case is such a difficult one to resolve in the face of such overwhelming uh, evidence of innocence 
um, I, you know, and, and such a strong group behind Jens. I mean, when I say a strong group, Angela Merkel, Angela Merkel spoke to President Obama on several occasions about Jens. I mean, when have we ever heard of that? The, the, the president, the former president of Germany, President Schultz, flew to Virginia just for the purpose of meeting with the parole board to say, send him home. I'll take care of him. I want to house him. I want to get him a job. I want to, you know, mentor him. I mean, you have the <clears throat> one of our most important allies in the world who have made it a national priority at the highest levels to extricate Jens from this impossible situation and bring him back to his own country. And yet, here we are. Can, can you guys touch on this? What, how do you explain this? I'll touch on it. I can't explain it. And I think you know, Jason, from your work in, in the innocence world, uh, as, as frustrating as this is, it's not unusual. Uh, we, we've had cases before where uh, we have to fight tooth and nail to obtain DNA testing for one of our clients. And we, we get the DNA testing over the objections of the local prosecutors and local law enforcement, we get the DNA testing. It clears our uh, client slash inmate, whatever. And so he's cleared. Okay. Then it takes a year procedurally to uh, get him out. Oftentimes the prosecutor will say, well, I don't really believe the DNA results. We're going to try you again. And so they bring him back to the local jail where they can keep him forever. Uh, and a year goes by, two years go. You know, this is not, again, as frustrating as it is, uh, as maddening as it is, um, I'm ashamed to say it's not that unusual. Uh, I think in Yin's case, though, we are um, pressing ahead with the full court press on many fronts. Uh, we are um, cautiously optimistic that the right people are listening to us. We are uh, almost sanctimonious in our belief that we are right and everybody else is wrong, and it's time to make something good happen. And um, that's that's why we are going to these efforts, and we're not gonna um, we're not gonna stop, slow down, or be quiet. Uh, we're just gonna get more and more vocal and push harder and harder until we get justice. Sheriff Harding, on top of all the other evidence and FBI agents like Ed Salzbach, who came forward and others to say that there had been evidence that had been hidden or, or um, not turned over, not disclosed in the way that the law mandates that it must be. There's also the uh, in Chapter 18 of the book that I referenced before, there's the story of the car in the woods. Right. Which would again, if you would think that this alone would be enough to send Yen's home. Um, you know, and I'm going to quote from the book again, uh, you know, in 2011, uh, Tony Buchanan, the retired owner of a Lynchburg area auto transmission shop, said that three to five months after the murders in 1985, a car was towed into his shop for repairs. It's undercarriage matted with grass and mud as if it had been sitting in the woods for a while. The tow truck driver told Buchanan the two-door Chevrolet belonged to, quote, some college kids. And here's the important part. He said in a sworn statement that when he looked inside, he saw that the floorboard on the driver's side was, quote, full of dried blood. Beside the console between the front seats, also covered in dried blood, was a single-edged hunting-type knife, the same type that was used to kill the Hasems. Now, I'm sitting here, I've got chills just reading that. And, you know, he, th this same guy testified, or swore, 
uh, an affidavit that neither none of those people was Jens. Jens was not one of the people that returned the car. Elizabeth was one, and somebody else was the other. But yet, here we go again. Yeah, he claimed it's just a shame so much time has passed. He claimed that he called and spoke to Ricky Gardner, who was the lead investigator, now chief deputy in Bedford, and told him about this. Gardner denies that, says it didn't happen. Um, so, so much time has passed. Some of the investigators did work that lead, and we kind of ran it out because time was not on our side. We tried to find any uh, documentation, written material, checks, and all that kind of stuff. The banks just don't have it from back in 1985. But if they'd been followed up on properly at the time, same way if they had sent investigators to the hotel they'd stayed at, it had cleared it up right away that Yens was there. She wasn't. It was his story of what he purchased was consistent with the hotel bill, which she said she purchased when she stayed there. It was very inconsistent, way over what, what the bill showed in it. Is there something that is interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? If so, then BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialists in issues including depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. And remember, anything you share is confidential. Now you can get help on your own schedule at your own pace and your own time. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions and chat, text with your therapist. If you're not happy with your counselor also, remember this, you can request a new one at any time at no additional charge. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. And for Wrongful Conviction listeners, you can get 10% off your first month with discount code WRONGFUL. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com wrongful. That's betterhelp.com slash wrongful. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor that you'll love. Betterhelp.com slash wrongful. But, uh, you know, the, the bottom line and most frustrating for me is that law enforcement, I'm in law enforcement, and I hope I'm respecting law enforcement. I'm a sitting sheriff, and yet the sitting sheriff in Bedford County refuses to meet with me and even discuss the case. The lead investigator won't meet with the four of us who've given thousands of hours pro bono. We don't have anything in it. We're just looking for justice. We ask for one hour, and he says he doesn't have time. However, we do have him caught on videotape saying a few years ago, this happened 30 years ago. He was convicted in court. Why do we need to go any further then? And I think that's the attitude, uh, which is... It's really shut down from an investigative standpoint. We've not had access to the investigative files or any further testing because I'm out of my jurisdiction and getting absolutely no cooperation from Bedford. Uh, we have proved absolutely that they lied and concealed the fact that there was an um, FBI profile done. My buddy, uh, who's retired FBI agent, we had asked the FBI several times, and they couldn't find any information. This uh, Ricky Gardner said absolutely, 100% positive it was not done. We now have actual documents from 1985 from the FBI that indicate a profile was done in Quantico, Virginia. So, you know, my buddy, um, former FBI agent said, if they will lie about that and they won't cooperate, what, what else is there? It, it certainly raises a red flag with us as investigators. Do we have any form of, of corruption or wrongdoing? 
Yeah, they won't even allow you to test the DNA of two guys that we know are in for committing similar crimes in another county in Virginia. Right. Who we don't we have no idea whether they committed this crime or not, but there's there's some reason yeah. to believe that they, they these, would these two guys knifed a man multiple times to death within a few days. And that far from the Hasem residence where the, those victims were, were located. And um, these two folks, one of them at least, was, according to his background that we've read, was involved in, in heavy drugs in the Lynchburg area, as we believe Elizabeth was. She was an admitted heroin user. And their they're, DNA should be in the data bank. They're both doing life of that murder. And we simply ask, would you take those profiles, compare them to the crime scene, and the state says can't do it. It's got the jurisdiction where the offense occurred. They have to request it. And to our knowledge, they're not doing anything. Which is just remarkable, right? When you think about the idea that they just refuse to test something that can only prove like one way or another. Either these guys right. did it or they didn't. Why wouldn't we want to know? Yeah, we want to know from an investigative standpoint, do we want to keep following those two guys as a lead? Or can they be excluded based on the DNA? Very simple. It would take about three or four minutes to compare those barcodes. It's so frustrating. I'm used to working in my own jurisdiction. If I want something tested, I, I ask a lab to do it. They do it. If I want a search warrant, I get it. If I have witnesses and we have two or three people that need to be interviewed in this case who refuse to cooperate whatsoever, I don't have any grand jury authority to serve a subpoena on them. So it's, I really feel for the Innocence Project. I see what they go through now. Now that I'm on the other side of the fence, I feel like you're operating with both hands tied behind your back. Everything's working against you. So you got to put a lot more work and effort into it than you really should and try to get to the truth, which we all should want. But apparently we don't all always want the truth and justice. I, you know, it's also something I want to touch on before I turn it over to John for a second, which is that back in 2008 or 2009, uh, with the support of Bishop Sullivan and other uh, luminaries, both religious and political figures, uh, Governor Kane granted uh, a conditional pardon, I guess you would say, that would have allowed you to go back to Germany. And this is such an unbelievable thing to even think about. When I hear myself tell this story to people, I don't even believe it myself, but I know it's true. And then as literally as you were packing your bags, uh, the, gov the new governor came in, Governor McDonnell, and he uh, revoked for the first time in the then 234-year history of Virginia, he revoked the previous governor's order and, and, and decided that you would be kept in prison for the rest of your life, which is uh, just an unbelievable thing to process. And, and it, is, it is remarkable going back and thinking about the number of people and the quality of people that have come to your uh, defense. And even now, the, the support of amazing uh, people from journalism, the Washington Post, uh, who are even here today covering the story. Um, so many of, of the literally the finest um, uh, organizations and and uh, the leaders of different uh, from all 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 parts of the uh, uh, the country have have taken up this cause. And I wanted to ask you, John, of all the millions of things you could be doing with your time right now, and we know that with about you know the estimates are five percent of people in prison in America, which is about a hundred thousand people are innocent. There's so many innocent people, and again, there's so many other things that you. Sheriff, me, uh, the million, the, the pro bono lawyers who have helped Jens throughout the years and still help him now, Steve Rosenfeld, Steve Northup, and others. Why are you so obsessed with this case? Uh, I wouldn't say I'm obsessed. Uh, I'm very concerned about it. Uh, since The Innocent Man was published in 2006, and I joined the board of The Innocence Project in New York, uh, I've done a lot of 
this type of work as you have, Jason. I haven't done as much as you have, but we, as individual members, we we tend to get involved in cases uh, that we hear about. Uh, I'm still involved with the two guys in Oklahoma. There's a case in Mississippi that I'm involved with. I've known about the Yen Searing case here for 25, we, we've lived here 25 years in Charlottesville. And um, I read about the case a long time ago. I didn't pay much attention to it. I saw that it was a confession. I figured, well, okay, they got the right guy. Um, was never too involved in the case. And then a couple of years ago, um, talked to Steve Rosenfield. We, you know, we had a, we had a coffee, talked about the case, and he asked me to take a look at it. Well, by then the case had been looked at uh, f- so many different ways by so many different uh, people and. Chip Harding also, uh, you know, spoke about the case and said he by then he had 500 hours in the case. He's probably got 5,000 now. But um, I, I just started reading about the case and read read the book, uh, saw the movie, and um, realized this took place, you know, very close to where I live. I was convinced, became convinced it was a huge miscarriage of justice, and uh, became fascinated with it. And um, you know, I've thought about writing the story. I've thought about writing the book. Uh, these innocence cases uh, always inspire me to um, write the story because the stories are so, almost all of them are so fascinating, compelling, heartbreaking, uh, but they're just good, rich, deep, complicated stories. And I, I love that type of a story. So, um, you know, I talked to you, Jason. We, we've known each other for a long time. We, we sort of got involved in the case after you, and, and here we are. And the more work that I do, I'm still catching up to you guys, but the more we work together, the more we, the more determined we are to, uh, to, to get a just decision in this case. And, uh, we have, you know, we have several avenues left. It's not, um, it's not hopeless by any means. We, we don't view it as hopeless. We, we think we can smell victory. John was just speaking about the multiple avenues available. Um, most innocence cases have only one real option, and that's a pardon, and that's usually a full pardon. And that makes it very difficult because somebody has to admit that they made a terrible mistake. My case is a little bit unusual in that the state actually has three options. They have the option of an absolute pardon, which would be to, de- to declare my innocence and actually admit what really happened, which was that this is a wrongful conviction. But they have two other options. They have a conditional pardon, which would be just to say that there's a lot of doubts, but not to say I'm actually innocent, just to say there's a lot of questions and a lot of doubts, and you can't be sure. And then there's a third option, and that would be parole. So one of the mystifying things to me about this, my case, in comparison to other cases, is that they have a whole smorgasbord of options to choose from. Full pardon, or absolute pardon, conditional pardon, and then parole. And they're choosing not to exercise any of these options. And I find that puzzling. Sheriff Harding, I'm going to put the same question to you. I mean, I have my own reasons. I mean, different cases uh, affect all of us differently. Um, You're both Virginia guys. I'm a New York guy. But, you know, I recognize injustice when I see it. And I also recognize in this case the, the added tragedy of human potential 
in that Jens, and he and I have talked about this at length, um, the, the idea that Jens could be, I mean, he has contributed a lot to society, even from the inside of these maximum security prisons he's been stuck in for all these years. But the idea that he could be uh, out, you know, doing great things um, with his intellect and with his his spirit and his courage. But what what is it about this case in particular that makes you want to devote your free time when, you know, again, you could be out fishing or whatever it is, playing golf? Oh, well, this just came to me, and I'm captivated by it. it like you say, it, um, you really have to dig into it to, to, for it to really grab hold of you. Uh, I first got in, really interested in this type of work, innocence work, by reading John Grisham's book back when it first came out, The Innocent Man. And then I became friends with Brandon Garrett. He used to be a professor here at UVA's at Duke University. Now he has a book out, Wrongful Convictions, uh, How Criminal Prosecutions Went Wrong. And he's got a lot of research data. Um, I'm not bragging, but I worked as an investigator and investigative supervisor for over 30 years, and I never lost a case and always thought I did it right. But after reading John's book, with Holy Toledo, I don't think I ever wrongly convicted someone, but the opportunity surely was there. You tend to get tunnel vision just like these folks did here. You tend to go in those gray areas that you think because you think you've got the right guy, you're doing the right thing to protect your community, and you're not necessarily doing that. So in looking at this case, I'm seeing all of those things. I'm seeing tunnel vision. I'm seeing junk science. I'm seeing so much that's wouldn't be interesting I'm, if I had to sit in jail like Jens to look at it, but I'm finding it a fascinating case to dig into. Um, I, I read some of the letters. It just blew me away. There was one by Elizabeth that she wrote 90 days before the murder that said, I'd always believe that I made men fall in love with me so that I could take out all the hatred I felt for them by humiliating them. I despised their cheap lust and easy passions, and in the end, I made them hate themselves for loving me and the torture I inflicted. So she might be enjoying him sitting there. The other part of it is looking at Jim Updike, who, I'll give him credit, I thought he did a good, masterful job of winning the case. I don't know if it was about justice. He wrote in an, in an interview that I've, I got a copy of, on one hand, she freely admitted her parents wouldn't be dead if not for her. I agree with that. She wanted them dead. On the other hand, she was a great assistance to me. Updike said Hasem helped him gather the evidence against Soaring and even outlined the whole case for him. I'm going, you got to be kidding me. But you see this stuff all over the country. Um, you know, right now I've got a lot invested in this, as do the other investigators, and, and we'll do anything we can to prove his innocence if he's, and we do feel like he is innocent. And, and we will prevail because we're not going to, as John said, we're not going to stop. Um, we're going to keep fighting until we get him out, and then we'll move on to the next one. But until that's done, um, we're, not, we're, we're just going to get noisier and we're going to get uh, more efficient, and uh, we're going to. Uh, you know, ultimately prevail. I think that, you know, we do have um, a state here where I think there's a, a number of very good people in the system. I think the people on, uh, on the parole board are very well-meaning people. And uh, I think the governor is a, is a good governor who cares about this stuff, um, cares about justice. Um, I don't think that's true in all states by any means, but I think that that is true here. And we're going we're gonna to find out just how true it is. 
um, by shining a light on all these different aspects of the case. Um, Jens, before we close, I did want to ask you about your your current team, um, what they've meant to you, um, as well as uh, Gail Starling Marshall. And, you know, if you can just touch on that. I had a really, really bad trial lawyer who was eventually disbarred, like you mentioned. But I've also had really, really fantastic lawyers fighting for me, including um, former Deputy Attorney General Gail Starling Marshall, um, also Gail Ball, and who's um, in the movie, and of course Steve Rosenfield, who has suffered with me for I don't know so many years, and Steve Northup. You know, there's you know lawyers catch a lot of blame, but there's some really wonderful lawyers as well. And, um, and and that has been really, really helpful to me as well, to know that, um, you know, not everybody in the legal profession is also. There are some really, really fantastic human beings working as lawyers. And, um, and then, you know, these last few years, I've had wonderful people like you and, and John Grisham and, and Mark Sheen, who just had a letter to the editor published yesterday in the Richmond Times-Dispatch, um, you know, the people who really have more important and better things to do with their life than to worry about me, um, you know, stepping into my life and, and trying to help me, um, that's, that's, that's been really, really encouraging and, and, and has given me hope. And, and it, it gives me the hope to, you know, try to hold on a little while longer, um, you know, to see whether this can be resolved in some way, shape, or form before I die of old age, you know. Because um, I've been in here for, I can tell you exactly, 11,945 days. Okay? 11,945 days I've been in here. Um, <laughs> 32 years, 8 months, and 11 days. You know, and um, it hasn't been easy, but it's, that's what's carried me, these wonderful people behind me. You do have a, an extraordinary team, including the leaders of uh, of Germany, so um, past and, and present. Um, I want to tell the audience there's there's the movie Killing for Love, and the book is A Far, Far Better Thing by Jens Suring and Bill Sizemore, A Far, Far Better Thing. Um, and uh, for audience members who want to get involved, you can send an email to Alina, A-L-E-N-A dot Yarmovsky, which is Y-A-R-M-O-S-K-Y at governor dot Virginia dot gov. Or you can go to the website, which is governor dot Virginia dot gov. That's governor dot Virginia dot gov. Um, and then this is the part of the show that we've become known for. It's, I think, everyone's favorite part of the show. It's mine. And this is a part of the show where I get to uh, thank our guests, um, in this case, of course, John Grisham. John, thanks for being here. And Sheriff Harding, Sheriff Chip Harding of Albemarle County. Of course, you, Jens, thanks for, for participating in this and sharing your thoughts and, and experience and educating our audience. I want to turn it over to each of you just for brief closing thoughts. And, of course, we'll end with you, Jens. Um, anyway, John, um, final thoughts. Uh, as far as, uh, yeah, I've said it before, these wrongful conviction stories are always compelling and tempting from my point of view to 
uh, write about them, to to tell the fantastic stories as sad as they are, uh, but to also hopefully raise uh, awareness. Had I not written The Innocent Man, published it, uh, what, 13 years ago, there would not be the Netflix series now, which is getting far more attention than the book, which is all good. But as far as these stories go, you know, I've, I've got my top five um, innocent stories that I've run across in the past 12 years, and uh, Yenz's case has got to be in the top three. It's just such a... Uh, compelling uh, story of wrongful conviction and all the different ways that they, 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 the things that go wrong with our system and also the uh, relationship with this um, his accuser is, is is fantastic I hope there's a happy ending we believe there's going to be a happy ending because we're all uh, working hard with a game plan to uh, get Jens out and get him back to Germany and Jens and I have this uh, kind of a running gag that one day soon we're going to be drinking a beer together in Munich at Oktoberfest. I'm coming too. And by the way, he and I have the same uh, deal. So, you know, don't, I don't want to make you not feel special, but we've got the same. Yeah, me too, and he's got you paying for it, John. We're all invited. We're all invited to Oktoberfest. That's right. Um, Sheriff Harding, a final thought. Uh, until I got involved in this kind of work, I always thought that you were found guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. But it looks like in America, once you're found guilty... To be found innocent or pardoned, it almost has to be you're innocent beyond a shadow of a doubt. The standard is way too high. It's shameful for me to have 50 years in the justice system and to see the pushback, not just in this case, but other. I've read three or 400 cases from prosecutors and law enforcement that don't man up and step up and admit they make mistakes and seek the truth. And no one is ever held accountable. In the first 250 cases that Brandon Garrett examined, uh, in many cases, prosecutors withheld exculpatory evidence, so did law enforcement. In that one single case, did one officer ever go to trial or spend one day in jail? So if we can't police ourselves, how do we anticipate the public's going to have the confidence in us to police them? And now, um, saving the best for last, um, Jens, uh, your final thoughts. Uh, Thank you. I think it's important for your audience um, to realize that there are an estimated 100,000 wrongfully convicted prisoners in the United States. Um, That's a small city, and I'm far from the only one. I'm, I'm really, really so grateful to the three of you, John Grisham, Chip Harding, and Jason Flom, for drawing attention to my case, but I, let's not forget the other 99,999 victims of miscarriages of justice. Um, one of the things that I really would hope for is that if I'm ever released, um, I can maybe help um, draw attention to all those other people and work towards systemic changes uh, so that things like this don't happen to other people in the future. It's, um, this is, you know, something to think about. There's 100,000 innocent people in prison in the United States. Um, somebody should be really bothered by that. And, um, and I, hope, I hope your audience thinks about them as well. And I, I want to thank you for giving 
me this opportunity to speak today and talk about my case. Thank you. Uh, John Grisham, Sheriff Chip Harvey of Albemarle County, and Jens Suring. Jens, thank you. Don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcast. It really helps. And you know, I'm a proud donor to the Innocence Project, and I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause, and in so doing, helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. It's easy. Go to innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I want to thank our amazing producers, engineers, and editors, Connor Hall and Kevin Wardis. The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction and on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Company Number no. 1 and PRX. I'm excited to tell you about a new serialized podcast called American Jihadi. If you're into investigative journalism, if you're a news junkie, or if you love great nonfiction storytelling, it's a must listen. American Jihadi tells the incredible true story of the unbelievable relationship between journalist Christoph Putzel and Omar Hamami. Throughout the eight-episode series, Christoph recounts his investigation into the life of Omar, an American-born U.S. citizen who became leader of the Somali Islamist militant group Al-Shabaab, landing him on the list of the FBI's most wanted terrorists. From Omar's hometown in Alabama to war-torn Somalia, Christoph seeks to get answers. Why would a Southern Baptist turn to terrorism? And how close should a journalist get to his source? Listen to American Jihadi, out now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.